Hey there, Romance listeners. I don't know if you've noticed, but we've really been indulging my particular tipple about America's birthday on July 4th. And I really want to thank Nick and Morgan for going on this particular journey with me. Our last in the series, if you want to think about it as the red, white, and blue romance series, is an interview with author Donna Thorland. She wrote Mistress Firebrand, which we talk about on the podcast. She's also written Turncoat, which is one of my faves. I'm going to talk to her about what it's like to write late Georgian romance and what is essentially uh, America fanfic, and to love things that are problematic. She's an incredibly interesting human being who's done a lot of stuff. If you loved the underrated CW series, Salem, we're gonna talk a little bit about that. We're also gonna talk about the Sabrina reboot Netflix is doing that Donna Thorland is a part of. So I hope you enjoy. And thank you for going with me on this journey uh, about America's birthday. All right, mwah. Those ladies are very generous with their time. I'm sure you don't hang around there too much as that is a destination that we all want to spend some time at. You've been there? I haven't. I've actually never been to LA. So one of the things that I'm going to do in the next year is make the pilgrimage to the ripped bodice. I was gonna say, if if, if you're in LA, I feel like you have to go. <laughs> I, I'm just thrilled to have it there. That's awesome. So you spend a lot of your time between LA and the East Coast? I do. I split my time between Los Angeles when I'm actually working on a TV show or writing, you know, in development on a show or writing a feature. And then when I'm back in Salem, I'm usually working on books. That's kind of roughly how I divide it. I love that you geographically divide your writing spaces. I think that's fascinating, (laughs) but also makes a lot of sense to me. (laughs) Well, you have to be, you have to be in LA Mm -hmm. for TV and features. That's just where everything is. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I love bouncing back to Salem able to, you know, have a different environment. Totally. So we're definitely going to talk about your books, but I wanted to touch on the fact that you do write for the amazingly and highly underrated Salem series, which I loved because it brought Shane West back into my life. And now you're working on the Sabrina the Teenage Witch reboot. Can you talk about the move between writing a full length novel versus writing a 42 minute episode and like what that creative space is like for you? Yes, they are pretty different. In particular, the show. I mm-hmm. would have to like be careful to say Salem the show versus Salem the town I live in. Um, <laughs> but on Salem the show, the amazing thing is that that show's creator Adam Simon mm-hmm. uh, is a lifelong romance reader. Mm. So it's not an accident that that show has a lot of romance tropes in it. Mm-hmm. We did Secret Baby. Yeah, I mean it's in there. So that was amazing. Also to be able to write romances across a 10 or 13, depending on the season, episode season. Mercy and Hawthorne were my it couple. I loved writing for their crazy, twisted, May-December relationship. Totally. It's interesting in that a season of television in that 10 to 12 episode range is similar to writing and plotting a novel. You have arcs that your characters are going to move through across those 10 hours. But when you actually sit down to write an hour of television, the process is pretty fast. It's a couple of weeks. When you sit down to write a novel, you know you're going to be with it for 
That's an interesting way to think about it in terms of like, especially with Salem and other uh, shows that now that we're moving into the model of 10 to 12 rather than like 24 in a season, which is crazy. They do feel more like chapters in a novel rather than contained episodic like monsters of the week. And I think like it would make a lot of sense that the creative mode of writing a novel would lend itself to the talents of writing for TV. I like that. It really does. The thing that I love that television now does really well character arcs we see people change Mm -hmm. Uh, my my touchdown and i think the the television touchdown for a lot of genre writers of my generation is buffy we all loved buffy and being seeing her change over the course of the season Mm -hmm. also watching her trying to choose between different love interests to a different path for her life was so revolutionary on tv Mm -hmm. it's hard to understate how inspiring that was yeah boy buffy Season one doesn't hold up all that well when you go back and watch it, you know, 20 years later. But for me, it was a real turning point watching that show and saying, oh, character change. They don't have to just defeat the monster and hit the reset button at the beginning of every episode. And suddenly their relationship with their, you know, significant other or their friend back in the place where it was 42 minutes ago. I recently rewatched the season and while I, I agree that it doesn't hold up quite as well as so much as like the third or maybe even the fifth, there's some really effervescent moments like the fact that it's Xander who has to give her CPR at the end in the penultimate episode rather than Angel. Like there were some fun twists and turns like that. That was certainly a kind of awakening for me too. God, I love Buffy. Some amazing writing on that show. When I was in film school, I wanted to go TV more than I wanted to go features and USC at the time was very geared towards features. You know, mm-hmm. television was still really in the midst of this sea change of becoming richer and deeper and where grown-up drama went, you know, for cable. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of looking for guidance and sustenance outside school, so I wrote Marty Nelson from Buffy a letter and said, you know, you're my role model. Mm-hmm. Would you look at my thesis film script and give me some advice? And she did. She sat down and she gave me advice on, you know, how to craft a sort of compelling who isn't just strong and like her multitudes are the things that make her strong which also include foibles and bad decisions I love that we get to have a conversation about strong women like that and like that that was a critique of Wonder Woman. I'm happy that like that's the moment that both TV and film are in. But part of me, especially the romance part of me is like romance has been there for a long time. (laughs) Like we're writing flawed women characters. We're reading about them and like the choices that they make that cause catastrophic mistakes, but also the recovery from those mistakes and like those traumas. And I think that one of the ways in which romance has been dismissed is that they're like, oh, it's just women's fantasies. And part of that fantasy is being able to recover, like see yourself in a character who can make moves and like, you know, dust herself off. And I'm happy to see that those romance tropes about a strong woman who's also all of the ways in which strength can be a thing are moving on to television. It makes me really happy. Things are just, they're moving forward. I think romance in Hollywood still has girl cooties. I think you can make the analogy that it is in the place that comics and superheroes were before Marvel mm-hmm. said, let's get people who love and understand comics mm-hmm. to, to write our movies and write our TV shows. And I think that you're going to see a lot more romance on TV in the next several years, specifically adaptations of 
books you love. I'm in development, so I can't say <laughs> series, but it's one that we all love. Ooh. I think readers would be, and from an author who's in that same space between historical fiction and historical romance, mm-hmm. uh, whose books I adore, and I, you know, fingers crossed, we will make it to air with some characters that people really love and are more closely identified with romance than Outlander, because I think Outlander, it is romance, mm-hmm. but the books have been marketed as non-romance mm-hmm. and identified as non-romance for so long. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that's really, that's not the flag on the moon for us yet, but it's coming. Ooh, I love that flag on the moon. So jumping right in, like your work is sometimes classed as just historical without the romance appellation, but you always end with a happily ever after and it takes us a long time to get there and there's a ton of angst, certainly, and sadness between that first meet cute and where we end with our hero and heroine. And your covers are, I love your covers. Whoever does your cover art does a really good job because it's just, you know, a woman in a Georgian dress and you know like the lighting's all great do you want to class yourself as a romance writer like what what's the consequence good and bad of like living in a sort of liminal space between genres i think of myself as a romance writer i embrace the genre because i believe it's the most subversive genre there is you go all the way back to greek comedy and you know you take it straight through jane austen and into the screwball comedies of the 30s mm-hmm Romance is subversive because societies control people by telling them who they can love and yeah. how they can love. And romance is a genre basically about revolution. Yeah. It's, it's two people remaking the world by choosing who and how they love. So I think of myself as romance. Penguin um, were, you know, the people who came forward and said, we want to publish this as is. Ro- we had offers from romance editors who said, we love it, but can you take out the war? Um, <laughs> uh, the major character death that I won't spoil for people who haven't read The Turncoat. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the danger and references to sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Remove all these. Oh, and make it not about the war. And we'll publish it. And uh, that, to me, wasn't the book I wanted to write. Right. And Penguin said, we'll publish it as is. And please give us three more. So, <laughs> and I respected their choice to say, we think this should be shelved with historical fiction and that romance readers will find it, mm-hmm. but the downside is that it is harder for romance readers to find the books. Mm-hmm. They're not shelved with romance in most bookstores, yeah. even though I feel like they appeal equally to both audiences. I agree. I mean, that's one of the things that we talked about when we were talking about Mistress Firebrand and like all of the ways in which the historical details, it doesn't shy away from the gritty, makes it feel like a non-traditional romance. But like the beats of traditional romance are hit so perfectly, like obviously it is. It's just meatier. And it's one of the things that I really love about your work. I have to. I'm so glad. Oh, my God reader before I was sort of a new school reader. I missed the big canvas and I missed that, you know, there was an era in romance where not all the heroines were aristocratic English. Yeah. You know, reasons to be debutantes, which there are some wonderful books in that mode, but there was a time when I think romance was the place that women went to find adventure. Men could read all kinds of adventure novels. Mm -hmm. You know, their heroes could travel the world and they could meet interesting people and have sex with them. And, you know, women could do that in the pages of The Flame and the Flower. That, That was where you went to be a heroine who, you know, ran around the world and did interesting things. 
That's really interesting that you see yourself as like an inheritor of like Kathleen Woodowis or like a Johanna Lindsay. And like, I think that's really right. That's, that's really right. It is, it's an adventure story. It's a war story. It's all of the ways in which you can feel those things and like the excitement and the anticipation and the real fear that comes up. It like doesn't have to be an embarrassment in a drawing room. It can be across a battlefield or across the, you know, barrel of a 18th century gun. Oh my God! Yes. Oh God! I love Rebel Pirate. (laughs) I really love all your books. Yeah. Oh my God. So good. Um, So I will tell you that I found Turncoat and then the rest of your series after an incredible binge of the AMC TV show Turn, and I was like, (laughs) Yeah, it was like one of those moments around this time of year because I'm obsessed with the Fourth of July, where I just couldn't get enough of the revolution. So I binge watch turn and then I went to the internet and I was like I need more of exactly this and the internet turned up turncoat for me which was really exciting and all of this was before Hamilton hit their brainwaves so what's it like for you to be at the vanguard of the revolution and like this Georgian era resurgence in our popular culture I'm so glad it's happening it was really tough I mean the book sold in 2011 mm-hmm. and at the most editors you talk to said, ooh, the American Revolution was tough. People don't like it. They don't like the era. They don't like the fashion. They don't think it's sexy. So they're <laughs> so traumatized by badly taught, you know, American history classes in high school. And, and the hangover from the bicentennial. I have this fabulous blackmail photo of my older brother and mm-hmm. his wife in these Rev War reenactor costumes. Oh my God, like yes. Bicentennial. <laughs> 76. You know, when, like, all the women's dresses, didn't, they didn't look like dangerous liaisons, which they should have. They didn't mm-hmm. look like should be strolling the guards of Versailles. Mm-hmm. They looked like apple dumpling dolls. Uh, <laughs> they looked like, you know, frontier little house on the prairie dresses, which is not 18th century America at all, particularly among the revolutionaries. I mean, right. Hancock was a peacock. You look at the gowns on Mercy Otis Warren and Abigail Adams. Mm-hmm. These are women of fashion and taste. And, you know, the world of the world of copies and portraits. And I thought, oh, how do I convey this to readers who are convinced they know what the revolution looks like and that they, they don't like it? And I was really lucky at my wonderful, wonderful editor at Penguin, Ellen Edwards, said, well, you're a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Why don't you think about doing a book trailer? And I thought, oh, okay, sure, I'll, I'll do that. And my only experience with book trailers was old school friends mm-hmm. who had done the big viral trailers for Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and uh, really large production. So I said, okay, I'll do that. So mm-hmm. I went out, grabbed a bunch of screen actor friends, shot them into the historic house and thought, okay, this is helping. But then how do we do that with the covers? And Penguin was great there too. Because mm-hmm. they did an initial cover shoot that was a very sad woman looking at her shoes amidst flags. And I said, no. <laughs> Civil War, Civil War ball gown that's notorious in publishing circles that turns up on every photo shoot when, you know, you're not highly specific about what you want. That's so um, funny. And, and so we went back and we said, no, let, let's let's get some real fashion on these covers. So I'm grateful that they did all that, but it, it is sometimes an uphill battle, you know, especially early on to say, this is as sexy and as exciting as the Regency, maybe even more so. Oh, totally. Time. 
Yeah. And like the way in which like, that's one of the things that I think is really important to talk about, especially in historical romance. The Georgian era is a much freer era for women. Like there's much more turnover and intellectual thought than the Victorian and even the Regency. Like the Regency comes right after it. So like there's still a soupçon of freedom that came with the Georgian era that's about to be curtailed massively by the Victorian. But like that's something that is really exciting about the kinds of conversations women get to have in romances that like don't feel anachronistic in your books because like intellectual thought and like Mary Wollenstone craft and the rights of women, all of this is like fairly contemporary to the thing that's happening in 1776. Those ideas are germinating in all circles. And I think that's what's so exciting about this era. And like one of the really un- unplumbed depths of the Georgian era in general, where it's like women are doing really awesome things. And like your character, the widow, who is incredibly sexy and incredibly terrifying. Like this woman holds no bones about murder or anything else. And I love that about her. One of the things that we talk about in Mistress Firebrand is that all of your characters are really complicated and there are no really clear villains other than like General Burgoyne because everybody's so complicated. No, not at all. And like he shouldn't. He's grotesque and feels a lot like the conversations that we're having around Harvey Weinstein. You didn't base him on Harvey Weinstein, did you? I did not base him specifically on Harvey Weinstein, but a whole lot of, you know, a career in the entertainment industry ended up in Mistress Firebrand. Yeah. And the compromises that Jenny has to contemplate are the ones that women still face today. There are plenty more Harveys out there who mm-hmm. haven't been unmasked. It remains, you know, the numbers for women in the entertainment industry are shameful, shameful. You know, we direct fewer than, I think, maybe 8 or 9% of box office features in any given year. We write mm-hmm. fewer than that. If you want to be a director of photography, we shoot about 2% of mm-hmm. the studio features. The numbers are better in television, and that is really heartening. And there's real progress being made there. But features are tough, really tough. And that's, you know, that's a huge part of our popular culture. It's being shaped entirely around visions of men instead of ideas about women. For sure. And like every part of it too, I think that's one of the things that's an important conversation around me too that needs to be happening. It's like, not only is it, you know, directors of photography, but it's also editors. And like at every stage in this feature film industry, women's voices are curtailed or put aside or like totally absent. It's funny, I came back to romance because I was in film school Mm -hmm. and I had been a romance reader as a young person and I'd gotten way too cool for school to read romance at Yale and in my 20s and I basically stopped and I think it was maybe like 2004 or 5 I was at USC in the MFA film production program and you'd workshop scripts and my class was very male dominated you know it was Mm -hmm. two thirds guys third women and you'd sit in classes and you'd propose story ideas and when they were about women you'd have these conversations where most of the guys in the room would say haven't we heard that story before about oh my. women who triumphed over obstacles <laughs> underestimated by society and we're like yeah no not that often and they'd say well there's Aaron Brockovich that, that was their answer to everything there was Aaron Brockovich <laughs> thank you for my one movie um yeah <laughs> so yeah. I went back to reading romance at a time when and it was thrilling because you know the internet was exploding with blogs like mm-hmm. you know dear author and smart bitches mm-hmm. people were really interrogating why we read romance and formulating a sort of feminist theory of mm-hmm. where the genre came from that for me was my race home at the end of the day and sit and read the latest blog post and you know read a new book discover a new author yeah I think that's what's really interesting about the way in which romance readers and authors are really dismissed 
as like you called it girl cooties earlier. And I think that's really right. But like romance readers in particular are super loyal. They're super critical thinkers about what they like, what they don't like and how tropes can be subverted, but never broken. And I think that's an untapped audience ship that is entirely dismissed in ways that is really infantilizing. I mean, it doesn't surprise me at all that your two thirds class of dudes is like, oh, you go ahead, Aaron Brockovich. And I'm like, yeah, but what about everything else? And I think like that's sort of what's so great about the romance community and romance landia in general is that we've had to do so much of this ourselves. Like we've created our critical theory. We've really interrogated particular kinds of authors. Like there's a real movement to hold the industry, romance industry accountable. And then with the advent of self-publishing, like whose stories get told is a question that's constantly circulating. And in ways I think that's like really freeing and it's too bad that more people like aren't on board with this conversation. I think it is going to explode into the popular consciousness. I think we're headed there. And I'm excited. I do think you're going to see romance in the theater and on television because it, it has to happen. It happened for science fiction. It happened for fantasy. You know, where was fantasy before Lord of the Rings and before, you know, George R. R. Martin and Game of Thrones? Uh, it was there in was- the cultural subcontext of Ladyhawk, Legend, and uh, The Dark Crystal. <laughs> Yes, I, I was going to reference Hawk the Slayer. <laughs> oh my God, uh, yes. Yeah, if you reach a critical mass where people are reading and thinking and enjoying, and I think it, it can explode into the popular consciousness and impressions can be changed. Because once upon a time, you would have been looked at, you know, if you're sitting on a plane reading a comic book in the same way that I get looks when I'm sitting on a plane reading a romance novel. Mm-hmm. Now, but it's going to change. That's an interesting comparison. I like that. And I think also, since so much critical and intellectual work is happening, not the, and this happened in uh, comic books too, especially like with Frank Miller and like the reauthoring of what it means to be a hero and an anti-hero in comic books, where it suddenly seemed to gain intellectual legs, whether or not those were there before is sort of like whatever. But your books in particular are working along that deep vein as well, where you deal with race and racism, sexually transmitted infections, and of course, gender inequalities. Your books are the whole package. And I want to applaud you for that because it makes for really interesting reading and it raises some really interesting questions. But a lot of that, and I think like we talked about this a little bit earlier, where these obstacles and like these discussions that you have inside your novel are a traditional no-go for historical romances and like the nasty particulars that you get into. Like Aunt Frances is in end stage syphilis. Like she's losing her mind. And you make her illness a really important subplot not only for her, but for all of the characters in her orbit. And I was wondering why you chose to do that. I want to say up front that I do think publishers underestimate readers. They underestimate mm-hmm. romance readers and what they want to read. Mm-hmm. I do think that some of the no-go areas are often no-go areas just because it's easier to play it safe and know that a book won't contain anything that will instantly turn people off. And admittedly, you know, syphilis is not in the blur on the back of Miss True's fucking But, you know, it's the ultimate metaphor for love can kill you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Love is dangerous. Sexually transmitted diseases can kill you. And in an era, you know, if you really think about it, historical romance remains the highest stakes romance genre because it takes place in eras when your choice of a husband was life or death. Mm-hmm. You know, with the English common law and coverture and the idea that, you know, women did not have an independent personhood in front of the law once they married. Mm-hmm. Who you chose to marry would determine 
determine how the rest of your life panned out. And, you know, it's one in eight women. Did one in eight women die in childbirth? It's one in eight women, yeah. Yeah, for that period. It's it's life and death choices and when sexually transmitted diseases could kill you. Mm -hmm. Choosing a partner who was honest and upfront with you was also more important than you can imagine. It was life or death stakes. And so I think STDs actually have a place in historical romance. I don't think they're the turnoff that people imagine them to be. I think they are such a powerful metaphor for the danger of love. I mean, I think that's true. And I think the way in which you deal with the syphilis and like the history of it, and also the fact that Aunt Frances spends a lot of time discussing what Jenny's choices will mean for her if she goes to this meeting and like there's absolutely no shielding Jenny from what her choices will mean for her and I think like that's particularly interesting also the fact that you know Francis is like protect yourself but you know he might not want to wear a French letter and like be aware of what that means for you and like especially in the context of like what that meant for Aunt Francis I think is like a really interesting way about how inequalities continue to work themselves out and continue to wreak havoc throughout and like as people are like your eyes are open your choices are your own but it's like are women's choices their own in this case like what can we really mean like how does coercion enter into this especially if you feel like you have no other options and I think you deal with that question really deftly and what it means to feel ambitiously cornered and like I love that your heroines have ambitions and like are willing to do some crazy shit to like make them happen and I think it is like it is life and death even metaphorically our choices around our careers can still feel that way and that's one of the ways in which your book really moves between centuries in a way that feels both modern and like in keeping with the time i think there's a deeply embedded idea you know it goes all the way back to the classical era but i think it comes out particularly in 18th century sort of english Atlantic American culture, the idea that a woman who's told anything in the world, whether it was, you know, her skills as a, you know, printer or, you know, as an artist or an actress or bread, if she sells anything, she also sells herself. Mm -hmm. And it's so difficult to disentangle that from our culture that I think you see it today, you know, even Mm -hmm. if if you look at celebrities who you know, photographs are published of mm-hmm. themselves naked or in some vulnerable state, and there's the idea that they've made themselves available for public consumption. So yeah. They have a right to consume them. Mm-hmm. And it particularly pertains to women. And mm-hmm. so I think one of the things historical fiction and historical romance do for modern readers is give you a safe space to participate and work out those issues and those dramas in a way that can be more exciting and Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And like the commodification of what a woman is selling is a really good point too. And like the idea that you don't get to erect those boundaries once you've sold the first thing. Yeah, that's really powerful. I love that. One of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about Mistress Firebrand in particular is because there's this conversation in romance right now about it being a particularly lily white space and maybe even an unintentional space where neo-Nazis and white supremacists can find stories that reaffirm their feelings about England in particular, but also America. And in Mistress Firebrand, your hero is decidedly not of that mold. He's not a British lord. He's a second son. And even more than that, he was born on the wrong side of the blanket. As you say, I love that phrase. Severin is (laughs) Native American and a British officer to boot. I wanted to talk to you about why you wanted to have a hero who looked and sounded like Severin with his family history and everything else and like why that was important to you. There's a lot of things in there uh, to unpack. One of the things that 
things that particularly we do as women when we write historical fiction is we write ourselves back into a narrative that we've been slowly written out of. And I think that that's true across the board, right? We get a very white male presentation of history. And historical fiction is often this act of writing the rest of us back into the story and basically recovering Mm -hmm. the truth, which is that we've never been a homogenous nation. Mm -hmm. We've always been an incredibly diverse place. We haven't necessarily been an easy place uh, to be a diverse place, but historically there's been more diversity in America than we get in our fiction and Mm -hmm. in our history books. So Severin came out of reading about a number of real historical people whose backgrounds were similar, reading about the Whitlock School and saying, okay, who could this guy be Mm -hmm. in a a historical novel in one of these renegades books? Uh, And what would that mean to live between different worlds, which is such a particularly American experience. Mm -hmm. Severin is Mohawk and he's British, he's also American, and he's sorting out who he is really. And I think for a lot of people, especially in a country where people from different cultures marry and children grow up in households where you go to one family for a holiday mm-hmm. and everyone there is very Italian, but you're only half. And mm-hmm. you never feel quite as Italian as your Italian relatives. But you go to your Polish relative's house, you never feel, you feel more Italian there. It's the idea of being caught between worlds that was appealing and I think more universal than you would anticipate. And we also live in a country with incredible sort of class mobility mm-hmm. where, you know, you might grow up working class as I did and blue collar and you end up going to Ivy League school. And so you end up moving between these different worlds. And I thought, what could that mean for Severin and the drama mm-hmm. that, that would unfold? And what would it be like to be Mohawk and see Americans appropriating your image and sort of the popular image of what you were as part of the Boston Tea Party. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, we're all Mohawks here tonight, putting feathers in our hair. And think, gosh, what would someone who was Mohawk caught up in these events think? Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I really loved about revisiting this particular book in this particular moment is like the idea that there aren't easy answers and like loving America is problematic. It's problematic for Severin. Like the Liberty Boys are appropriating Mohawk culture and dress in a way that's like really, really damaging. And he has this beautiful line about the hypocrisy of freedom in the colonies because there's still chattel slavery. And how can they really be? fighting for freedom if like that's not a question on the table and I think the way in which this book feels like an eyes open account that is still really loving in its historical details is deeply comforting to me in particular but I think also to a lot of people who are currently struggling with this it's like America's problems are at the taproot and like they always have been so like the moment that we're living in isn't that different or even that extraordinary in the broad spectrum of what it means for America to fight for its foundational promise which is that we're all created equal and I think your books deal really well with that and I think part of it is because of your historical research like can you talk about what that process is like for you I mean you have incredible recall like you talked about finding stories about people like Severin like what does your research look like how do you how do you go about it so there's kind of two halves one is you know I spent the first decade of my working life at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem which has really one of the best early American collections in the country it's fabulous and that was an education in material culture social history and particularly through the historic house collection Mm. uh, women's social history Mm -hmm. that so valuable as background. What I do is I ran interpretive programs and the historic house collection. And so you were coming up with all the time, how do we engage visitors mm-hmm. in the past? You 
read primary sources. You read people's journals. You read what women and men were writing and thinking about their time, about their life, everything from the laundry list to probate inventories to people's letters. And that background is what makes it possible when I sit down to write a book to say, okay, I can probably do the research and get up to speed on the particular place and time in about six months. And wow. what I usually do is start with who are these people? who's like them in history and try to read as many letters and journals as I can to understand their voices Mm -hmm. and really sort of get inside their psychology and then try to also deep dive on the material culture because colonial New England Salem in the 18th century is not the same thing as upstate Dutch colonial New York in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. From what people ate to how they lived to literally how they put their houses together is different. Mm -hmm. So I try really hard to also do a deep dive on those things because I think our environment is so influential and I think it has an impact on character and story. Yeah, I mean, it clearly is. And you're right about like how you put your houses together. I was just thinking about reading journals and letters and like what an extremely beautiful experience that is and like how personal and intimate it feels. And you had a series of epistles in turncoat between the hero and the heroine that were like strangely terse, but also beautiful in their own way. I think there should be more epistles in all romance books because I love letters, but that's really fascinating. Letters are fabulous. I think the other thing that used to amazing is that other books that also straddle historical fiction and historical romance is directly done at Lyman's Chronicle. Mm. Letters exchanged between the hero and heroine, though at that stage you don't realize she's the heroine, <laughs> that are incredibly revealing and also just short. And you think, okay, I'm reading between the lines what these people aren't saying to each other which is really fun. Yeah, I think that's one of the things about letters that are really beautiful in the way that like you are forced to read between the lines. In general, that's one of the things about romance fiction that's really, really beautiful. It's like when you have the hero say something like doltish and then like you get his perspective and you get him kicking himself. And like, that's something that we don't get in real life where you're like, I can almost see it on your face that you regret the thing that you just said, but like (laughs) you don't have the capacity in this moment to say that you regret it yet and you will. And like one of the things that's like always true truly lovely about romance novels is this dual perspective that we get. And I think you deal really well with that, especially with Severin and his real attention to Jenny's safety and her consent, especially like in that scene where he's been fantasizing about her tying French letters onto his person. And the thing that I love most about Severin and his perspective is that he's never interested in like taking ownership of Jenny's autonomy. He's interested in making sure that she has it. And like that's allyship in practice and I think you write that really well and it also feels incredibly modern and I was wondering how you approach a scene that feels like a conversation that we're having right now like through the tenor of Me Too and how you write a scene like that in terms of the 18th century. It's funny because the scene was uh, and I I got my husband's permission to share this story. The scene was inspired by you know early on when I met him I'd never used condoms before and he said, you know, whether or not we use them, this is something that you should understand how to use and take ownership of this and safety. And it was for me, you know, and I realized there are people who would say, that doesn't sound very romantic, having this discussion of, you know, STDs and condoms and birth control. But I thought it was incredibly romantic because someone caring about your health, safety, and future. And so when I sat down to think about how people in the 18th century might have negotiated the concept of condoms, which mm-hmm. were a heck of a lot harder to use then. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought, okay, what is this conversation between them? And how did you actually use these things? Mm-hmm. And there are, believe it or not, people who make reproduction a 
Oh my God. <laughs> the mind blowing thing is, I mean, you know, they, they were tied on with ribbons, and mm-hmm. sometimes they had illustrations on them. Mm-hmm. thought, oh, okay. I guess that's marketing, packaging, right? Yeah. But there's nothing new under the sun. That was another research rabbit hole to go down. Like, what does an 18th century condom look like? What mm-hmm. is it made out of? Oh, and they're completely papery until they come in contact with moisture. And you just think, okay, this took some thought. <laughs> Yeah, that conversation is so funny. And what a beautiful and sweet story about your husband. I love that. And I super agree. I had a very similar experience where it's like your safety matters in this moment. And like, we need to have a conversation. And like, I hate it when people are like, oh, active consent. It takes me out of it. And like, no, it doesn't. And if it does, you're a terrible person. Like active consent and like what it means to be in a moment and saying yes and checking in with your partner is extremely sexy. And the idea that Severin won't have sex with her because she doesn't have protection is also super sexy. <laughs> the hottest non-sex scene. Yeah. yeah. I think understanding that love is partnership and not possession mm-hmm. is one of the things I think that it separates old school books from newer books. When I look back at old school reads, even the ones I love most, because as writers and readers, we weren't really having the conversation. Mm-hmm. We were enjoying the adventure. A lot of that is what's absent from old school books and what does make them hard reads. They're not necessarily about achieving allyship or partnership Mm -hmm. at the end. And a lot of the journey is about working out issues of consent in, especially in books that were globetrotting and the heroine has multiple partners and not all of them are consensual. It's about what a dangerous world it is and how sexual violence is so present in Mm -hmm. our lives more so than it is about a journey towards allyship or partnership. My Hard Limits book that I read and I just said, oof, no, cannot do this, is uh, Stormfire, Christine Monson. It's all horror and terror and terrible things being done to the heroine by the hero. Mm-hmm. And you compulsively read it. It's page turning because her danger is so great and you don't get the reward of allyship or partnership at the end. Yeah. But you're there for the journey because the journey feels dangerous and real. Yeah, that's also one of the pleasures that you get to enjoy about romance where like the danger is real and heart palpitating and terrifying and awful and like there's a memorable scene in Turncoat that like I almost had to put down because it felt those things but like that's the pleasure of it. Like I can put it down and come back to it later in the safety of my like warm and safe bed in Chicago and if I want to I can skip it entirely and like the way in which the access of consent and like what I can consent to inside of my own pleasure inside of romance I think is also one of like the paratextual conversations that are happening around what it is to recognize enjoy and further your own pleasure inside of these spaces and like the mental space that's created the work of partnership between an author and a reader in those spaces is like really alchemical and beautiful and I think you're right when something is a page turner and even as you want to look away there's something there that's like addictive maybe but there's i think also something whereas sort of women who do face still a lot of danger in our contemporary lives in a historical romance or a work of historical fiction because we can close the book we have some control over that violence we have some control over that world and i think 
that's where a lot of the appeal of many old school books came from. Mm-hmm. It was a controlled world. We could shut the book. Yep. And we knew that the heroine was going to come through it at the end of the day. Even if we had to go back to work and face the guy who was, you know, an ass grabber or who was, you know, harassing you. That's power between the pages of that book. And a kind of space that romance has given women as both escape fantasy, but also, yeah, like exactly what you're talking about, control. Where it's like we are living in a space where it's like as soon as you walk out the door, your body is owned in a particular way by society that not all other bodies are owned. And like that kind of constant viewership, that kind of always on display that women have to deal with, it doesn't feel safe. And the idea that there is a space where you can shut that off and that romance provides that space for you, I think is really, really special. And I think in one of the ways it makes me sad and upset that it's so dismissive. But I think like, again, I'm glad to think that you are so excited that this is all about to explode and that like these conversations will enter the zeitgeist. That makes me really happy because I think they're such important conversations and like, especially in the Me Too movement that we're in, like women are talking about what it means to have control, not not only of their bodies, but also of their ambitions and like how far we can rise and like glass ceilings and like what it means to be a powerful woman. And I think like the fact that your books are going back to the beginning of America's founding and having the conversations that we're having now and putting them in the 18th century makes them feel accessible and like diverse in a way that maybe it's harder to have that conversation now with our friends or family. And it's not hard to have it in terms of severing looking for his identity or Jenny looking for ambition because like the way that Jenny's treated by a general Burgoyne is tragic and terrible and easy and awful and we can all say that like it's obvious but like somebody said to me recently that the casting couch has always been a thing and will always be a thing and I was like no why would you say that yeah (laughs) yeah and like the idea that you could even admit that the casting couch was like a way in which women would rise rather than like a way in which women were forced to rise. I'm like, how is it that you don't get this? Like, how are you this ignorant? Especially when it comes to coercion. And so like, I think the idea that you're creating a space where it's like much easier to point out a foul character or like a bad actor. I think that's one of the spaces that historical romance has really opened up because it makes it so outsized and so obvious without it being well, outsized. in 18th century England and 18th century America, if women's economic opportunities are so limited that selling themselves that that is one of the only viable options to achieve a level of independence, then is that really any different from rape? And if you look at sort of contemporary, you know, an industry like the entertainment industry, if there is no conduit to power that doesn't involve selling your body, then what are the options? I think it's impossible to estimate just how much women have been held back in the entertainment industry in the last century by the number of people who decide to take their ball and go home, whose only conduit to power, who ended up, you know, in a place where the only way they could rise was by getting by someone who required sex in exchange for advancement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there has to be so much talent that never saw the light of day because of that. And, you know, in a sense, the number of women who, you know, were lucky enough to not encounter those obstacles or who got past them in some way, they're a tiny fraction of the women who wanted to be part of the conversation, who wanted to tell their story. Yeah. Can you tell we're all pretty angry? <laughs> angry women are angry. Yeah, and we're all angry together, which is why like having this conversation with you 
um, sort of lessens that anxious, angry, furious rage inside of my chest that like rattles around and has been rattling for quite some time. And I think one of the things and why you're writing feels so personal to me is because I do really love the 4th of July and I love America's birthday and I love the musical 1776 and finding your work was cathartic for me last year and the year before in a way that I probably don't have words to describe because it felt like all of the things that I feel about America where it's like it is a problematic place but like the first mosque was built here in 1664 we've always been diverse we've always been striving to make the promise of liberty and pursuit of happiness true for as many people as possible and there's this incredible quote from one of the first black congresswomen where she was asked to be on the Nixon impeachment panel and she has this beautiful speech that begins we the people we the people has never included me it hasn't included me because of the color of my skin it hasn't included me because of the gender that I am but I believe it will include me and it is my work to make it include everyone and like that striving that reaching that constant struggle of equality is such a hard thing to reconcile with the America that we have today, where it's like, it does feel like we're making incredibly terrible strides backwards. And like reading about Severin and Jenny and their struggles feels so modern and feels also at once like, this is who America's always been. It's always been diverse. It's always been a little bit scrappy. It's always been searching. And I think like, that's a gift that your narrative gives those of us who are so sad right now. And I wonder- Go ahead. Any comfort in knowing that when we read what the founders and women of the period and founding mothers and fathers were writing is they knew that the struggle would never end. Mm-hmm. It's baked in from the very start. That's why they created a system in which we have a nonviolent revolution every four years. And, mm-hmm. and that's, I think, where hope comes from, is knowing that these people, and some of them some of them were already thinking about universal suffrage for women. Many of them were already abolitionists. Mm-hmm. Many of them, I mean, Thomas Paine proposed a basic minimum income yeah. in the 18th century. These ideas were out there. They weren't all achieved, but people knew that the struggle would never end, that we live in a constant state of revolution, and that to it continue to sort of expand the rights that you know, women have, that everyone has. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something that we are in continual process with. That will always be forces of backlash. There was a profoundly conservative period following the revolution. Mm-hmm. Everyone was nervous. You know, what was going to happen next in the French Revolution was terrifying to everyone. Yeah. And yet, here we are. We've made progress since then. We're going to continue to make progress. The revolution is a process, not an end point. Is that why you're so attracted to this particular time period in your novel writing? It really is, because you, you realize that they knew the struggle was baked in from the start. And that always feels incredibly hopeful. That they would just persevere on. And then, you know, Thomas Paine died in obscurity. Yeah. But for him, the revolution never ended. He went around the world seeking revolution. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the struggle was worth it for him. As it should be for all of us. So how do you celebrate the 4th of July, if you do? Uh, we do. And uh, I'm on a brief break from this week so I'm home in Salem Massachusetts Mm -hmm. and we have a terrific fireworks show and pops concert that takes place on the Long Wharf which uh, historic wharf from the sort of you know great age of sale and trade in Salem Mm -hmm. and uh, pretty much the whole town walks down there and we sit on the steps of the Carpenter's house where Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote the Scarlet Letter and dealt with all of his early American guilt (laughs) (laughs) and we watch the fireworks and hang out with our neighbors and it's 
pretty terrific. That does sound super terrific. I'm very jealous. I'd like to go to the East Coast for the 4th of July sometime. It's all great except for the humidity. <laughs> well, that I can believe. So, Donna Thorlin, what can we do to support you in your incredible work? Obviously, everyone should watch Salem who hasn't. And everybody should pick up your uh, Renegades of the Revolution series if they haven't. Turncoat, Mr. Firebrand, Rebel Pirate, and what's the Dutch girl? The Dutch girl, yeah. Yeah, the Dutch girl. All of them have beautiful covers. All of them are really great. I can't recommend them highly enough. What should we do to get excited about Sabrina, which I have heard rumors is going to be much grittier than the one that I remember? It will indeed, and it's going to be amazing. Yeah. I'm very, very excited to share Sabrina with the world. It'll be on Netflix, and though I can't tell you when yet, I promise it will not disappoint. If you love Salem, I think you'll love this, and if you loved the old Sabrina, I think you'll love this. I think, Ooh. I think you're going to fall in love with Sabrina when you meet her. Okay. Well, I can't wait to watch. We will definitely do a promo on our podcast as all of us love Sabrina. And for some strange reason, both Morgan and I love Salem and never talked about it until this week, which was really funny for us to discover. Oh my gosh, I'm so thrilled because that show is so much, I mean, it's full of romance. Yeah. And women and I hope so too. I think it's going to be a real sort of the expanse where it's like sci-fi didn't know what to do with it in its first season. Then it hit Amazon and people exploded over it. I think Salem, Salem's going to be a slow burn like that, I think, because it's just so fun. It's super fun. And for people who love gothics, especially romance readers, we've got your secret baby. Come talk to us about secret baby, separated lovers. It's got it all. It's got it all. It really does. We got your May, December. We covered almost everything. Oh, yeah, cross-dressing. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. Oh, it's so seedy. I love it. Uh, Donna Thorland, this has been such a true and everlasting treat. I cannot thank you enough for uh, being so flexible about this interview and for being so generous with your answers and your time and for sharing your work with all of us. You're an incredible creator and this has been a dream come true for me to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much. It's been so much fun. This is my romance fix for the week. Uh, <laughs> Good. What romance are you going to be reading in your time off, if I can ask? You know, right now I'm reading something that's not typically category romance at the moment, but it's fascinating to me. It's reading Above Suspicion by Helen McGinnis. Ooh. You know, who was you know, the, the queen of espionage fiction. Before we gendered espionage and everything, John Le Carre and right. Julian Fleming, she wrote espionage novel in the, I think, 1940s and 50s. Many of her books were turned into movies. This one is her first, and it's set in the summer of 1938 in Europe, Germany, Austria, on the mm. war, and it's the premise of them, a couple. So it has this romantic element. Mm-hmm. She writes beautifully about partnership. This couple, who are academics, are asked by a friend who is a spy to travel into Nazi Germany and make contact with an agent that they have lost touch with. And the mm. reason these two are chosen is they are harmless-seeming academics who hike in Europe every summer, so they are, as the title says, above suspicion. <laughs> and it's just delightful. That sounds great. I will have to check that out at my local library. That sounds really good. Worth seeking out. Thank you so much. Have a happy Fourth of July. Thank you so much that you have a wonderful 4th of July. I hope that everything that you've foretold about romance bursting onto the scene comes true. And I'm excited to watch your work in the future. Donna Thorland, thank you so much for being a part of Romance today. Thank you. Take care.
folks, it's Morgan. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Our logo is by Mary Reichman, and our original music and editing is by Nick Gravelin. They're the best. Feeling woeful about waiting a whole week for more Womance? Well, chin up, Buttercup. You can creep or connect with us anytime on Twitter. We're at woe underscore mance or Instagram, womance, all one word. You can also find us on Tumblr at womance.tumblr.com. If you prefer to be more direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com. Can't wait to hear from you. And don't forget to tune in next week.